So welcome back to Lessons Learned. I am Laura Winter, sports broadcaster, podcaster, host and journalist. And I can't believe that we've come to the end of season two of the podcast. So for one last time this series, we are about to delve into the minds of brilliant sports people to discover the pinnacle moments that have shaped their professional and personal lives and the lessons they have learned along the way. Perhaps lessons we could all take some comfort and inspiration from too. As I said, this is the last episode of Lessons Learned for now, but there are 15 more episodes for you to enjoy with superstars such as Jamie Chadwick, Sam Warburton, Sir Matthew Pinsent, Becky Adlington and more. So do go back and catch up. For this episode, my guest is racing driver Jack Aitken, a rising star on the path to the very top of the world of motorsport. With wins in F3 and F2, Jack made his debut in F1 last season as the current reserve driver for Williams. We are about to talk about his struggles in 2018, the tragedy of the 2019 Belgian Grand Prix, making the most of opportunities and much more. We are recording at the start of 2021, so unfortunately, due to the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, Jack and I spoke virtually on a rainy Friday afternoon in April, but we've smoothed the audio out as much as possible for you. Enjoy. My final guest of season two of Lessons Learned is racing driver Jack Aitken. Jack's breakthrough season came in 2015 as he scooped a hat-trick of junior championship titles, earning him a spot with the Renault Sport Academy for 2016. That season, he drove for Arden International in GP3, finishing fifth overall, with a maiden win coming at Spa-Francorchamps. In 2017, he continued racing in GP3 with ART, finishing second in the championship before making his F2 debut in 2018. Jack made the switch to Campos Racing for the 2019 F2 season and claimed victories in Baku, Silverstone and Monza and became the reserve driver for the Renault Formula One racing team. In 2020, he was named the reserve driver for Williams Racing Team and went on to make his F1 debut in the extraordinary Sakir Grand Prix in Bahrain. Jack, welcome along. How are you? Very well, thanks, Laura. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. Uh, excellent introduction. That was, uh, that was impressive. <laughs> I checked all the details with you about two minutes ago. Um, yeah, a lot going on there. It's amazing how much you've achieved already, considering you're still, I mean, to me, you're about 18 years old. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, sometimes I feel like I'm a geriatric in the world of F1 these days, you know. But no, it's been uh, it's been a good old ride, and hopefully, still lots to come. Many fruitful years ahead. I hope. Yeah, absolutely. Where are you in the world right now? So I'm in Oxford, uh, which is where I live normally. Um, I say that in a weird way. It's because I'm on the road for so much, as, as you know. Um, and I've managed to have a couple of weeks back here now to just have a bit of a routine before the season really starts with my first race next weekend, which is quite nice. Yeah, so what are you up to this season? I remember when I spoke to you um, for Instagram, we did a, a glass of wine with, you refused to tell me or give me the exclusive of your 2021 plans, except to yeah. say it was the decade of the full send. Um, but you're racing in the GT World Challenge Europe Endurance Cup, aren't you? Just tell us a bit about your plans. To be fair, I didn't really know what I was doing when you asked me last time. So I wasn't just being mean. Ah, I see. <laughs> it was all still in motion. Um, so, yeah, like you said, I'm racing in uh, GT World Challenge Europe this year, uh, both in the endurance and the sprint championships. And what that means, I think it's uh, 12 races in total over the year, um, mostly in Europe, as the name would suggest. And it includes the crown race of the 24 Hours of Spa, which I'm super, super excited about because I've never done... Um, these big endurance races and I've always wanted to so um, really really looking forward to that I've done a little bit of testing first race is in Monza uh, next weekend which is a three-hour race um, and alongside that I'm also going to be carrying on with Williams in my reserve duties for the team um, but they've kindly allowed me to you know co complement it with GC stuff as well because I think that's good for my development which is, is great. Yeah, it's great stuff. How will you balance the two, do you think? And how are you looking forward to, or perhaps approaching with some trepidation, making that transition from F2 racing into the world of endurance? Yeah, uh, balancing the two is going to be tricky. You know, insert the Benny Hill music and running from airport to airport. But um, luckily, a lot of the clashes are Europe to Europe. So, for example, um, 
if F1 was racing, I, I can't remember the exact clashes, but a lot of the time they'll be racing in France and I'll be racing in Spain. So worst comes to the worst, I can just jump on a plane and get to the F1 um, ASAP and the GT team are covered in that situation as well, which is great. Um, but in terms of getting used to it from F2, that's been quite tricky, uh, but really, really fun in a way because it's been so different. You know, for the last, what is it? It's nearly 10 years now. Um, seven years. The last seven years I've been racing in single-seaters and I've never really done anything with a roof. And it's been uh, quite nice to have something different and to learn a new skill in a way because it is completely different. There is downforce in these cars and they are still very quick. Um, but, um, you know, they, they have traction control system, ABS, which, you know, you have to learn the quirks of how to get the best out of them. There's a lot of weight to the car. They roll around a lot, you know, managing that and not um, pushing it too much. It's, um, it's very different. And as well, not just in driving the car is it very different. It's also the approach of the whole um, paddock and the team in that you have to make a lot more compromises because you're, you have teammates. I'm driving with two other guys. They have different styles, different levels of experience, and we have to make the car as a whole quick. And it's not just about how can Jack be quick in the Lamborghini, it's how can the, the car be quick. Um, so that's been really cool to, to get into and actually learn as much as I can about. Yeah, great stuff. Best of luck this season. It sounds like it's going to be an experience that will make you a more well-rounded driver, I suppose. That's what I was going for. I think, um, you know, a lot of people were maybe a little bit um, confused or not so impressed uh, when I said, oh, well, I'm not going to do F2 again, I'm going to do this. Um, but it is for exactly the reason that you've just said, it is something different and it gives me a bit more depth as a driver. Williams agree. Um, and I've been, like I say, super, super supportive, which is fantastic. Um, so I think I'm going to come out of this year an even better driver. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's crack on then with the five lessons that you have learned over, like you said, what has been so far a long career, but hopefully many more years to come as well. Um, I love that you've given each of them a kind of like catchy title. I really appreciate that as a, as a journalist. Lesson number one, the best isn't always what's best for you. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's my school homework um, feelings coming back. Um, so what I mean by that is, um, especially in the world of sport, I feel like um, there's a natural urge to to look for what's the best, what's the quick answer, what can make me the quickest. Um, so in motorsport, that would be things like what's the best car, what's the best helmet, what's the best team. And on the surface, they are simple questions because you can if you want to find the best team, you look at the results from the last five years. If you want to find the best car, you find the results again in the last five years and just filter it out. Um, but I think the more you learn as an athlete um, and the more experienced you become, the more you realize that not everything works for you. And whilst a lot of the time, the answer for most people might work for you, there will be very critical times when they don't. And to blindly put your faith in those um, those things is a mistake. Um, my specific lesson uh, or case study was 2018, 2019, when I was with ART in Formula 2, like you said. Actually, I, I did a year with them in GP3 as well in, in 2017. And ART are a huge powerhouse in single-seaters. I mean, they, they just, they win everything. But they've had people like Hamilton, Rosberg, Kovalainen, I think I've won. Anyway, a lot of really good guys uh, coming through their doors. I think there's some ridiculous statistic, like at one point, nearly um, it was a third of the grid on of Formula One had come through ART at some point. So it seems like a no-brainer. If you have the opportunity to race for them, you, you do it. Uh, and that's how I saw it in 2017. I come off a strong year in, in GP3 with Arden, which was a very successful team as well, but not of the same uh, pedigree maybe. And I thought, I, I have to take that opportunity. I can't not, because um, that's my chance to win. And I did the year. I finished second to George Russell. Um, and it was a good year on the whole. But I came away with some frustrations, obviously, from not winning. And I didn't feel like I'd quite got the best out of myself. So I re-signed with them in 2018 for F2. Again, seemed a very logical step. 
they were less dominant in F2 than they were in GP3, but still an amazing team. And the people, I knew them very well, and I had a lot of faith in, in the engineers, mechanics, the management. Um, and I really, I really liked them. So I, again, I saw it as a no-brainer. Sign again, let's go. And it was me and George. And I had probably the most difficult year of my career or one of the most difficult years of my career, both in terms of results and uh, just personally struggling with with dealing with that because inevitably as a driver, as a sportsman, um, you attach maybe a bit too much of your identity with with results. That's that's a different problem. But so I really struggled. I got one win, one podium, and they seemed like I was opening the door to better results and getting on top of things but it would just fall apart then again at the next weekend. And uh, George was having a great season. He would win the championship and I finished uh, 12th or 13th. I can't even remember, um, which was well, well below expectations and um, really disappointing. And um, now having had time to reflect on it, it's quite clear that um, there were a few key things that went wrong early in the relationship the way that I was working with the team, the way I was using the people around me and the way that they were using me as well. Those things were not obvious, Um, just a style of working perhaps or not jumping on certain mistakes early enough and then communication issues coming up because it gets more and more difficult and everyone starts getting a bit anxious and it it just falls apart. so, and there were signs of that in 2017 and GP3 with them as well. It just wasn't as well, it hadn't developed as much. So it wasn't so obvious in the results, but looking back, it's very clear. Um, and then the next year in very, in, in a big contrast, I joined Campos, which were a very small team who have a lot of pedigree, of course. Uh, they've been around for ages. They've had a lot of success, but not in recent years and not to the same level as ART, I, th- I think it's fair to say. Um, and I joined them because uh, I knew a few of the guys there and I thought they were good. But to be honest, I, I thought it would be difficult. Um, but it, it was a gut feeling and also a, a case of limited choices at the time. And I had one of the best seasons I've had of my career. And it was in its own way, a bit of a breakthrough season. Uh, like you say, we won a few races. We were in the championship fight until the last couple of rounds. And in a way that that's gave my career a bit of a kick again because it turned me from someone who'd had quite a disappointing couple of years um, into suddenly he's outperforming the car and he's doing really well. And um, and I think people could see that I was really happy where I was. And that was just because of the relationships that I had there, a lot more trust and faith between people in that team uh, with me and a way that a way of working that fit my style a lot better. Um, It wasn't perfect. There were things that, would have been better in a bigger, better team. Uh, resource was always an issue for us, but it, it, it still underlined to me that um, you can't just look at the headline of the best option because there are so many things that are going to making a result. And as you get to know yourself better, you know what you need and you need to listen to that. Yeah, absolutely. Not very long, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> No, it was, I was just, you know, listening to your answer there and how articulately you can speak about it now, uh, looking back. But I guess at the time, it was very difficult to put those feelings you were having into words. Did you discuss amongst the team what was going wrong and why you thought it was going wrong? Had you actually even had space to pinpoint those dif- difficulties in relationships or in communication style in the way you were working? Yes. Uh, I, you know, I'll reiterate that I think ART are a fantastic organization and they were very keen to see me do well um and you know we had a lot of meetings um a lot of discussions about what to do um not necessarily knee-jerk knee-jerk uh changes because we all know that's not the best thing as well uh but certainly changes were made to try and get the best out of the situation um but at the end of the day it, it always um, and at the time I couldn't see this and, and, you know, that's why we never really got to the bottom of it. But, um, looking back now, it was clear that I was not in a great place with, um, just pushing too much, um, basically. And I was, you know, trying to chase a result that wasn't coming 
it's a classic thing in sport. I think you, you see things start to slip away. You try to grip it harder and, and it gets worse. Um, and that wasn't recognized by anybody around me maybe early enough. Um, and I think the same thing was happening on the engineering side because I was asking for solutions um, to my problems, uh, some of which I think were valid. Um, others, maybe I, I should have just been told to shut up and drive. Um, and that's a skill in itself for the engineer to know when to say that. But they were not able to give me uh, the tools that I needed and the things that I needed to be comfortable. And it was made even more difficult because on the other side of the garage with a very similar car, uh, George was doing very well. And it was always okay. You know, it, it never came to them saying this, but of course it's always in the back of everyone's mind of, well, you know, Jack, George has just stuck it on pole with that car. So it can't be that bad, can it? Um, but it's, it's just um, people need different things. And that was a classic, classic um, spiral situation, um, which unfortunately we, we couldn't get out of in time. And at the time during it, did you blame yourself? And how difficult was that mentally? Absolutely. Some of it I, I blame myself because um, I think I had some um, I had some experience, uh, but not a lot. You know, I was still quite young. Um, and naturally, I'm the type of person that will will be quite pessimistic, I think, um, and sceptical. Um, and that leads me to question everything, not just myself, but the car and um, everything that's going on around me. So when, when it was going badly, I was asking and pushing for things from the team to help me. But at the same time, you're always looking internally and saying, well, George is able to drive that car. You know, you have the same tools. Why can't you just adapt? Why can't you learn to do what George is doing? And there was a lot of that versus, no, stick to what you are good at, stick to your strengths or stick to your style, because uh, that's what you've driven with for the last five years or whatever. Um, but none of those are simple questions. And, you know, when the results continue to, to be bad, um, I think every athlete has had that experience where it just seems like, Whatever you do, you can't get it right, and but you know some of that blame will always fall on, on yourself. So it can be quite tough. But I was lucky that I had little specks of light with one or two good results, and Renault at the time were giving me opportunities with testing the F1 car, um, where I did very well against some of the the race drivers and and the other test drivers, and that gave me some confidence back as well. And I was I was very lucky to have that. We've seen it documented in Drive to Survive, the intense nature of uh, within teams when they are competing against each other, they are desperately trying to cling to their seats as well. Just how intense is that environment? You, you experienced it with George. How much does it affect your own personal relationship with your teammate, but also your rival? And how intense is it to actually live with day in, day out? Um. I think it varies a lot depending on the situation. I, I, I haven't watched all of Drive to Survive, but I've seen the memes about Lando and Carlos, for example. Um, well, I mean, to speak about George and I, because you know that's um, what we're looking at. It, it was it was mostly pretty friendly. You know, uh, I'm still friendly friendly with George today. Obviously, working with him at Williams in a way. Um, I think it comes down to you know, having a bit of respect for each other. If you have that level of respect, it can get, it can get pretty intense, but it won't get too ugly um, because at least you both know, well, you're just here to do the same thing, really. You, you just want to compete and you both want to get to the heights of uh, whatever sport it is you're doing. And um, that's, you know, it's just life. You, you just have to accept that you're going to be sat next to each other and compared to each other a lot. Um, so and with George we, we did have that so that was fine and actually I can't really think of a time when I've had a really um, difficult relationship with a teammate um, so yeah I think uh, it can get dramatized a lot um, but most of the time I think drivers at least have that, that uh, last little bit of respect <laughs> to, to not be um, too dirty or too, too underhand I would hope. Absolutely. There we go. Uh, we'll move on to your second lesson, which is having more than the bare minimum of time to do your job isn't enough. And this is about 
balancing what I'd imagine was a burning ambition to be a racing driver alongside what we all have to do, and that's go to school as kids. Yeah, and my parents were very uh, strict about that, which, you know, I would agree with, I, I think. Um, if it was my kid, I would do the same. Um, it didn't really work out in the end because I, I am <laughs> going to be, a, I would hope, a professional racing driver. So my my time would have been better served in, in the car. But um, no, to, to give a bit of context, um, when I was uh, 16, 17, I was in my final years of karting, just moving into cars. And for people in the UK, you'll you'll know that's coming up to the time when you're doing you've done your GCSEs and you're about to do your A levels. So quite an intense time at school. And um, I found and I was in quite an academic school as well. And they didn't take too kindly to me taking uh, long weekends away for for racing. But um, I just. Um, found it really shocking when I made the the switch finally from 2014 to 2015. 2014 was when I had my A-levels. I was driving in the Euro Cup for the first time, Formula Renault Euro Cup, and I finished seventh. And I, I had a win and a couple of podiums, but it was quite a difficult year. Um, and then it was almost like flicking a switch. Like you say, 2015, I had my my breakthrough through year. We, we won the Winter Championship in... America, the uh, Pro Master Winterfest. I then went on to win the Euro Cup and the Formula Alps Championship um, at the same time. And I can pretty much completely attribute that to a little bit of extra experience, having done the previous year of the Euro Cup, but much more so having the time to go testing and do that little bit extra over the winter. I think I did over double the, um, the amount of testing uh, because in Formula Renault it's relatively unrestricted. Um, and then probably the biggest thing for me was the, the amount of headspace that I gained from not having to juggle those two things. And I was always able to do what I needed to do for racing, uh, whilst I was at school, which is to say doing the, um, the work before you get to the track, um, in simulator, um, talking to the team about any pre-briefing material that you might have, uh, which is quite common and, going through things ahead of the weekend, then actually doing the weekend itself and then having a debrief afterwards. And that's kind of bare minimum alongside your, your physical training. Um, when I stopped at school, what it allowed me to do, apart from doing a little bit extra of a few other things like testing, uh, physical training, working with the team, maybe increase all of that by 20%. Um, I just had so much more time just daydreaming about racing uh, where previously I, I was stressed or had to think about the next assignment or getting that piece of homework done, which I've left to the last minute, like always. Um, and suddenly, instead of all of that, you're you're in your head at Spa because that's where the next race is. And you're thinking about, well, what if it's wet on the first lap? What happens at Eau Rouge? You don't want to be on the outside there because they can just shove you off and, what if um, you're fighting going into Blanchimont and you have to decide whether you lift to get the momentum into the bus stop and all of that kind of stuff, which is just almost childish, like running through scenarios in your head and um, playing these games in your in your mind of uh, what might happen. Um, and it helped me massively. I was just I felt so much more prepared when I got to the track. I was far less often surprised or caught out. In, in lots of situations. I wasn't a huge amount faster in 2015 than I was at the end of 2014, um, but my results were a lot more consistent. Uh, and I attribute that to that, that adaptability and not uh, not being phased by, by anything really. And I had a lot more confidence. So um, yeah, that, that's pretty much it. I, I always try and um, allocate myself as much time as I can, not just the minimum for that reason. If I have tasks to do, or I know that something big is coming up, whether it's a race or a test, I will try and make sure that my schedule is uh, a little bit clear in the run up to that event, uh, just to give myself some breathing space and to let my my mind have a bit of uh, freedom with that, because um, you, you can get too constrained uh, with trying to to force yourself to do tasks in a certain way and be robotic about it when. Um, the best ideas and and 
the most productive stuff can can just come out of just sitting on the sofa and just letting it letting it happen sounding very vague here i know <laughs> no i love it it's like all those times as a kid we're told stop daydreaming get on with your work you're actually championing daydreaming right now you're I saying yeah. visualize yourselves in the place you want to be in and have fun in your head and you never know where it may lead and also like you're so right if you spread yourself too thinly you're never going to be 100% for one given thing so you had to go in your words full send to be a racing driver and that, and that could only happen always full send it could only happen after school yeah yeah I, I think I didn't realize how much of a um, challenge it was doing the both at the time and, and my parents as well um i'm absolutely not while we're on this subject advocating dropping out of school early because uh, that is a sore subject i think it happens far too often um but accepting that it's a very difficult decision to make but but i i was that kid who got told off for for daydreaming and i still have my um you know notebooks from school and they are filled with um i used to play a game where i would draw out an imaginary circuit usually so or sometimes a real circuit um, and I would have little boxes, one, two, three, whatever. And I would play races with them and like do it like a board game, you know, where you have the three cars going into the last lap and I would move them like corner by corner. Well, what if this guy switches back and what if he covers the inside? Uh, so I've got like 50 of them in my notebooks. Clearly I was paying attention in school, but that was in break time. Yeah. Of course. Oh, of course. What were you good at at school? What were your favorite subjects? <laughs> um, well I mean for A level I took maths uh, physics history and art but I wouldn't say that's an indication of what I was good at um, I just had no idea what to do so I took a spread um, and that was a big problem because for a while I did consider university at my parents request um, and I had no idea what I wanted to do um, uh, because I, I wasn't particularly taken by anything at school i mean i've i've always been relatively good with numbers uh but not good with advanced mathematics like mental maths i'm good at and just basic stuff um and then i like anything that was to do with digging down into how it happened or how it works so physics and history were both things i enjoyed for the same reason but obviously completely different subjects so there we go. You could have been a physicist or a history teacher. Oh, that, that might be pushing it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great stuff. Um, we'll move on to your third lesson. And this brings up what I'd imagine is one of the most incredible moments of 2020 for you. And that is put yourself in a position where you can take opportunities. And you were certainly given one in 2020 at the Sake Grand Prix. Yes, just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure how to phrase this one with my... Uh, catchy one-liner because it's a little bit both of put yourself in a position where you can get opportunities in the first place and a little bit of when those opportunities come be ready for them um and that's you know sounds quite um it's, a, it's something you hear a lot but it, it resonates with me for the experience that i had last year and a few other times um you know in motorsport um one of my coaches used to say physical um uh, PT coaches you used to say you're not training uh, for what you're doing now like F3 you're training for F2 because you never know what can happen you never know if some guy gets injured and you have to jump in and if you're too weak to drive an F2 car for an hour you, you've just completely wasted that opportunity for for what an extra half an hour in the gym um, per session you know, it's it's just not worth not being ready and that can be applied to, to everything. You know, with Williamson, the Sakir Grand Prix, um, you know, I'd switched that year from Renault uh, being the reserve driver uh, in 2019. No, yes, 2019 um, to being reserve driver at Williams in 2020. That came about a little bit because I was looking for a little bit of a change and new opportunities. And Williams were very keen to 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 give me that that role where I knew that there could be opportunities. And it wasn't just the Sakia Grand Prix. I got a chance to do an FP1 in the Styrian Grand Prix at the start of the year. Um, and I saw those as as goals. You know, it, it was a case of, I know I've got this FP1. 
Um, it's my one chance in the year that I'm guaranteed to get in the car. Um, and maybe you'll get in the car for the Abu Dhabi rookie test. And maybe, maybe, maybe you'll get in for a Grand Prix. Um, and those are huge opportunities. Um, uh, so I spent the year getting as well integrated with the team as I could, which meant traveling with them to and from races on occasion, um, going to races where I wasn't necessarily needed uh, and just, you know, spending time with them, getting to know how they worked, getting to know the people um, and, you know, obviously spending the time in the gym as well and in the simulator and slightly less exciting stuff, but you, you just have to log those, those hours. And when the chance came to do, the Sake Grand Prix, that was on the Tuesday night or the Wednesday morning before the race. You don't have time to, to get ready and cram it in the last minute um, for, for any kind of event, let alone a Formula One race. So um, I was so glad to have done however many days and weeks I'd spent in the simulator. So glad that I'd spent that extra bit of time working on my neck strength in the gym and um, and just knowing the, the Formula One um systems on the wheel and everything pretty much back to front it was just one less thing that i had to worry about um and it really paid off and i had a good weekend because of it and um that's you know i don't think i've got a huge amount to say on this because i think everyone understands the basic basic concept of making sure you're in the right place um, and waiting for the right time and then being ready for it that, that's all it is really yeah, there's a saying, isn't there? The hard work puts you where the good luck can find you. So yes, you may get given an opportunity and it could be a stroke of luck or, you know, in your case, of course, Lewis coming down with COVID, that isn't luck. That's obviously, you know, it was a worrying time, but it, it's kind of a, a, a moment where you are suddenly given this opportunity, but you have to be 100% ready in that moment to make the absolute most of it. And you're absolutely right. So many questions came in um, when I did ask for questions for this podcast along the lines of your um, debut, what it's like to drive an F1 car and what your emotions were making your debut as well? Uh, I mean, I was lucky enough to have driven an F1 car quite um, a few times before, once in the Williams in the FP1 and then a few times with Renault. And the feeling is it's just incredible, especially with the current generation of cars. I think, you know, the quickest that they've ever been. Um, the hybrid systems are so impressive that, it's uh, it's pretty mind-boggling that you're you're easily over a thousand horsepower in the performance modes of these cars, and they they don't struggle to put that power down. Uh, they've got a lot of grip. The high speed feels like it's a video game uh, because you, you just need to commit and to have a really fine feel for where the limit is. But um, the car just sticks. It's so so strong yeah, in terms of aero. Um, but all that stuff I'd experienced before, when I made my debut, it was more about the small things, like um, doing the the driver briefing, even though it was COVID safe briefing on Zoom. And you see all these faces that you you grow up watching on TV. I'm like, huh, <laughs> maybe it's now now is not the time to ask a stupid question. So I'll just keep my head down. But this is pretty cool. Um, and then on the grid again, when you're hearing the national anthem and you've got the the planes flying overhead and um, there's such an atmosphere, even though there wasn't a crowd there, really. Um, that was really, really special. So I'll, I'll never forget my, my debut. And um, it's even better because, like I said before, I feel like I pretty much did the best that I could that weekend. There were some mistakes, but equally, I drove pretty much as well as I knew I could. Um, and I, I'm really happy with how it went. So it was yeah, a bit of a... Uh, a real experience, obviously, yeah. And I think for the fans, it was that it was one of the most anticipated Grand Prix of the season. It was just incredible, wasn't it? Um, and the drama that ensued as well throughout it. When you look back on the race as a whole... Fault, I know. Everyone <laughs> keeps telling me on social media. I wasn't going to say, it was your fault. <laughs> what you don't know is that I, yeah, um, George's car was secretly very unhappy that he'd left him for a race. So... It wasn't my fault. It was George's car that was throwing a hissy fit and chucked me into the wall. That's my story anyway. Yeah, I think you should stick to that. I did also really enjoy your recent tweet saying, <laughs> at least you managed 60 laps before spinning in Bahrain. Unlike <laughs> yes. uh, Nikita Mazepin. <laughs> it got some attention, didn't it? It did. 
Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's another, that could be another lesson learned, little uh, bonus one. The more followers you get, the more hate you get. <laughs> and oh. that is a linear relationship, whatever you do. Uh, yeah. Gentlemen, so, yeah. I what's, what's, what's funny for me, though, about um, social media and about comments and hate is that you'll read one comment and it'll be, I love you, Jack, you're fantastic, you're a brilliant driver, you're my favourite. And then the, the next comment will be, why don't you get out of Formula One, get out of Formula Two, why don't you go and die? Yeah. And it's just this polar opposite binary love-hate relationship that social media seems to conjure i think it's better if you read it as a uh, as caricatures then you can't take it too seriously because it, it does feel like that sometimes the best ones though are when you see a tweet which is um they clearly don't expect you to see it or to reply i get a lot of these in my messages which i'm like <laughs> what do you mean you is i got one um, not long ago actually that was it was really rude um i say that like i'm my dad uh, but it was it was really rude not just to me but to some people very close to me um so i replied which is you know never do that kids it's the golden rule don't engage but i engaged and then they came back with a really like soppy um, apology and say oh no I didn't mean it like that and I'm actually a really big fan and like <laughs> you cannot just pull that 180 and expect just because you it's the the veil of anonymity you know people think that they won't get seen saying these horrible things and doing these uh, horrible actions on, on Twitter or whatever but but I see you you know <laughs> I'm judging you trust me yeah I think there's um a good response or a good tactic to use is kill them with kindness and that's one that I tend to employ if mm -hmm. I ever need to. Just go Absolutely. back with, with kindness. You know, I wish you well. I hope your day improves so you don't send anyone else a, a death threat today. Yeah, I hope whatever you're going through will, will end eventually. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Good replies. We'll move on to your fourth lesson. Um, this is the catchy one-liner for it. Know your value and go to places where it's high. Yeah. So... Um, this one is a little bit, um, what, what can I say about this? So the case study, the case study for this one where I really had this hammered home to me was in the last year. And it overlaps a little bit with the, um, the previous lesson, but um, I mentioned that I moved from Renault to Williams uh, with the same role, reserve driver. Um, and at the time, a lot of people, again, social media, but a lot of people were um, calling it a bit of a downgrade, effectively, and saying, oh, you've made a step backwards because Williams lasts on the grid um, and Renault were, were mid-table, at least. You know, why have you done that? And it was very, very simple for me, um, not in the beginning, because, you know, there was a big decision. Renault have been a huge part of my, my life as a racing driver, and I have a lot that I'm super, super thankful for them about. They gave me the first opportunity when I won the Euro Cup. They taught me a huge amount about uh, being a racing driver as a professional, both physically, mentally, uh, learning the ropes within the team. Uh, I spent four years at, at Endstone getting to know everybody, and I'm still friends with a lot of people there. Um, and I think it's a great organization. Um, but... You know, at the end of the four years, we'd reached a point, especially after my difficult years in F2, um, it reached a point where I felt like I wasn't valued as much. Um, and that, you know, that came about for a few reasons and, and um, things that, that I, you know, I won't go into, but it, it was basically, you know, when you, you're not feeling um, as valued as you once were or as you would want to be. And I was given an offer to, to stay on again in the academy, um, even to do potentially a similar role. Um, but it just didn't feel right. And it hadn't felt right for a little while. And I also felt that I'd learned almost, um, not learned as much as I could, because there's always more to learn, especially in the Formula One team. Um, but some of the, the things and projects and my personal aims within Renault were coming to an end and it felt like a natural uh, shift point, to be honest. And Williams had got in contact. Um, I did a, you know, a little bit of uh, research for want of a better word 
with people in the industry that I knew who were at Williams. And they spoke very highly of the, of the people um, who were there, both in management and within the team itself. And I, I decided to, to take a little bit of a risk and, and to go a bit because they were really, really keen to have me on board. And as much as it can be soothing the ego a little bit, it is also, I think, really important for people to want you um, in any kind of business because if they don't want you, even if you have a role there or a job there, um, it's very likely it's not going to be what you want or it soon will not be. And um, at least when you go somewhere where you're valued and, and wanted, um, that can change and that, that's that's not the case. So uh, that was the case with, with Williams. I felt hugely welcome there. Uh, I still feel that to, to this day. I think the standard of people and um, of work at Williams is absolutely on a par with anything else that I've seen in Formula One. I think it's a real disservice to just say they're the team at the back of the grid and hopefully that will change soon anyway because of the work that those people are doing. Um, and I feel like I've benefited from it, not just uh, personally, I'm in a much better place, I think, as a driver and having confidence in myself, um, but also my, my career because I'm, you know, very, um, I'm very active with making sure that I'm doing what's best both for me and Williams at the moment. So that's you know, where this year's program has come from, combining the GC stuff with the reserve role. Um, we had a very, very honest and frank discussion before all of that was decided at Williams to say, I want to do what's best for, for Williams. And I know you guys want to do what, what is best for my development. So let's, let's work this out. And that kind of discussion can only be had when, the, both parties want to be involved with the other and have a genuine interest and, and that's the case and it's great so um, make sure that I guess to, to sum it up um, it does take a bit of um, a skill to, to know you know, to, to read the signs I guess and I can't give much advice on that but when you can read those signs if you do feel like that is the case and you're not perhaps um, feeling the, the love quite as much as you should um, or you feel like there are people who will value you better uh, for the work that you do. Um, and absolutely, I think that, that's a, a massively important part of the decision um, in choosing where you go and where you work. I think it must ring true in, across many different professions and in many walks of life that if you go somewhere where you're valued and, and you're loved and not to sort of go overboard, but you're seen as part of the family of that business institution organization whatever it is your performance will ultimately be greater be better you'll you'll be able to perform to the best of your ability because you'll be given the freedom knowing that you're worth something and you're valued within that organization definitely i agree i mean i'm a lot of the, the sportsmen and women who have been on your uh, various podcasts Laura. god you growing at an alarming rate um <laughs> but a lot of them talk about um, the mental aspect of how you have to be in a good place to perform well and you can perform well if you're not in a good place uh, for a short period of time but there is always a clock on that and um, you know I think um, it can come across I'm sure to, to some people that we're being a little bit airy-fairy and saying oh it's great to be loved and you know it's a really nice feeling we're all part of family um, but trust me you know when you're not you will, and you're in a high pressure situation and you have to perform day in, day out, uh, that will take its toll. You will feel it. And it's very tangible. So um, I really challenge anyone who, who disagrees with that to, to go through both experiences and not be better off than the, uh, the one that we're talking about. For sure. Absolutely. And we'll move on to your fifth lesson, which is take nothing for granted. Uh, and I want to thank you for talking about Spa 2019 um, and the tragic events that happened at the Belgian Grand Prix, because I can imagine it's going to be difficult to talk about. So thank you for sharing them on here. Um, go ahead, talk us through this lesson. Yep. Um, so again, it's probably one that I don't have to explain too much to people um, in terms of what it means. Um, and it's one that people will hear a lot. So that's probably not what I'm going to focus on. What I'm going to focus on is that I, like a lot of people, knew that that lesson or that phrase um, before SPA, but um, it's very, very different when, when you... Um, it, it was a, a massive wake-up call 
and how nonchalant I had been about about life um, and about um, my own comforts and the privileges that I have. Um, in the sense that uh, today is a good example. I before I came here, or I was. Um, I went to Williams because uh, I'm lucky enough to, to use their gym at the moment. They, they make it accessible for the drivers. Um, and I really didn't want to go. I booked in a slot this morning. Uh, I woke up feeling absolutely horrific <laughs> um, because I had been on a really hard uh, bike ride yesterday. And the bed was very comfy. The alarm was being snoozed, you know, all of that stuff. I eventually got going. And it was as I, I was writing my lessons for, for this down over breakfast. And I got to this lesson. I thought, you're not even listening to that lesson right now, Jack. You know, you've forgotten again. Um, you have access to a gym when so many people don't. You're doing it because you need to be fit enough to get into a Formula One car if you get the chance to race in a Grand Prix. And you're complaining because you're a bit tired. Come on, man. <laughs> it's, um, you know, get over yourself and, and go and do it. And, um, you know, I think it's such an easy one to, to forget and to, to let slip. I, I know I do it all the time. And um, I think, you know, you know, when we, when we had that the tragedy of, of losing Antoine, um, because it was a friend, because it was someone that I'd spent time with at, at Renault and at the racetrack, um, it, it hits home a lot more what's been lost. Um, and I, you know, what makes it, I think the hardest part for, for me was not so much, um, not in itself losing Antoine, um, because I cannot claim to be, to have been one of his closest, closest friends. Um, a lot of other people lost a lot more in that sense. Um, but it was the opportunities for, for Antoine that were lost and, uh, for his friends and family you know, seeing their sadness and their loss, um, even now to the, to this day, uh, just reminds me of, you know, how can you, um, how can you be as so laid back about, about making the best of what you've got and using these opportunities? You absolutely cannot, you have to, to make the most of it. Um, and you know, he is a really good reminder for me many, many days, um, when I find things hard or if I don't really want to do something, which is more often the case than things being too hard. Um, and it's just, you know, you just have to, to grip things. And, and I'm losing my, my thread here. I'm descending into, uh, to, to rambling, but um, no, no, you know, I think people understand what I'm saying. It, it, it sure. really, really um, hit home for me that, um, you have an amazing life available to you. You cannot waste it. You, you don't have that. Um, that uh, you can. You, that would be a massive, massive waste and, and shame. Um, so you know, go ahead and, and make the most of it. Absolutely. Um, for those listening who may not know, may not know the story, um, at the 2019 Belgian Grand Prix, Antoine Hubert was racing in the F2 race and very sadly and tragically crashed and died. Um, and it was an awful, tragic weekend um, for the whole world of motorsport, the world of sport. Um, and I mean, a very significant day, clearly, for you, Jack, as well, actually, in changing your perspective, as you've just said, on on things that we do take for granted. We take for granted waking up every day with a roof over our head and food on the table and and our health. And they're things that we take as given. And I think the last year and indeed, for, you know, a tragic weekend like that can show us those things can so easily disappear just like that. And actually, um, a good friend and her boyfriend, uh, Chris Lawless, who rides for um, Direct Energy Cycling Team, she, they both said to me at a time I was moaning about going out training on my bike and they said, Laura, you get to go out on your bike today. You don't have to, you don't, you know, you don't choose to, you get to, you have this opportunity to ride. So many people can't ride. They may be ill, they may be injured. They may not know how to ride a bike. They may not own a bike. And it kind of, like you were just saying there, put it all in perspective for me that, oh, yeah, I get to go and ride for two hours in Girona of all places. That's, that should be a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, another reason why it, it hit quite hard was because because um, Antoine was personified that in a lot of ways. He was 
Um, such a hardworking guy, but he also just, he, he was uh, a character who, who loved life. He was involved in a lot of things um, other than motorsport. And he, you know, he, he had, uh, he, he was not the kind of guy to, to waste those opportunities. So I think that makes it even more, um, you know, um, words missing here, but poignant. You know, poignant. That's the word. There you yeah. go. Yeah. No, Cause we were, um, before that weekend in Spa, we were actually in a training camp in the Pyrenees. Um, I think I've, I've done a story about this on my Instagram, um, uh, back on the one year anniversary, but we were in the Pyrenees for a week long training camp, which was on bikes. And it was to go from the West coast of the Pyrenees to the East coast. And for those of you who, who don't know, that's probably about 800 kilometers, 900 kilometers across very mountainous terrain. Um, and for sure, when we were going out there, I think we all saw it as we were all excited. And it was, um, especially for people like me and Antoine, because we were both into riding anyway, um, it was a really exciting thing. And it was beautiful scenery. And oh, we're riding in the sun. This is great. This is in training camp. This is amazing. And uh, slowly, you know, the fatigue took its toll. And day six um, was really, really bad weather. It was like pouring rain uncharacteristically cold and um we had two mountains to climb that day uh, as you do uh spent most of the morning going getting over the first one and then freezing our butts off on the descent because on the descent you don't pedal which means you get cold and then the wind is rushing against you and making you even colder uh, so we were all like ice blocks by the time we got to the bottom of this thing and we stopped to have lunch um inside somewhere um, because we were all going to get hypothermia and we were racing the, the next week in, in Spa, uh, a week and a half in Spa. And uh, the guys who were running the camp said, look, you know, we can't have you being ill before your race. This is a bit silly. We're going to pack everything into the vans and we'll drive to the next checkpoint. And uh, over the next hour while we were having lunch, uh, little bits of blue sky started to appear in the black clouds and um, and eventually Antoine just said, look, you know, um, we haven't come this far to just drive the next 40 kilometers. No, it wasn't 40, it was like 80 kilometers, but anyway, um, because then we won't have cycled the whole way. It will have, it will have missed a bit. Um, and I said, you're mental. I'm going to keep eating this hot bowl of pasta. <laughs> I'm getting in that van. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Um, and I was really, I was really in my head um, focused and stuck on don't get ill for this race. That would be so stupid. You know, why take the risk? Um, you know, this is, this is not important enough to, to do that. And then um, Victor, who was Victor Martins, so another French driver said, I'll go with you, Antoine. I'll, I'll come. And I was like, for God's sake. <laughs> now, now I have to say yes. Uh, so I was like, all right, yeah, I'll come too. And then a couple of other guys, uh, I think Kayo Colette and um, Ife Ye also said that they would finish the day off with us. And um, it was a beautiful day after that. The sun came out. Um, it was still bloody hard. It was like one of the most miserable climbs I've ever done on a bike because I was knackered and the cold had taken it out of me. Um, and Antoine obviously raced off to be first up the mountain. Um, but we, we did it and he, you know, he was right. Uh, we can't, um, it would have been in a way worth it to get ill. I, I feel dangerous saying that because, uh, driving cars is my job. Spa was my job. Um, but it was such an amazing opportunity and I still want to go back and do that project again. Um, riding coast to coast where you don't have to worry about anything else. You've got amazing roads, amazing food. We had amazing people because we were all, you know, relatively, we were friends in that bunch and we had some great guides with us. And, um, it was a holiday. It was amazing. And uh, we had to take every last bit of that that we could. Um, and that, like I say, that was that was one, one and a half weeks before Spa. So right until until then he was um he was doing the absolute maximum so yeah, yeah making the most of every opportunity for sure yeah. thank you for sharing that um i asked the public um to send in some questions and we had tons um i've chosen my favorite one though my best one it's quite a deep one 
Um, it's from Danny Jones, and he says, "If there was one thing you could change in your career, what would it be?" Um, give me an extra few temps per lap, please. <laughs> um, no, I guess he, I guess he means uh, decisions that I've made um, up till now. Um, it's a hard one to do because I feel like it's cheating a bit now that I've got so much hindsight. I would have I would have left school early but only because I know that I would have made it. Um, again, not endorsing that for young parents and kids um, because you can do it without leaving school early. Um, probably more realistically, I would have probably gone into something like FIA Formula 3 when it existed um, because it was a really great competitive championship, super competitive, massive grid, and lots of track time. And I really undervalued track time when I was younger. Um, and it gets more and more restricted the higher you go up to save cost until you get to Formula 2, where I think in the whole year you get um, now it's three days of testing and then you're into the first race, which is ridiculous. You know, you have to learn a whole car, sometimes a new team in three days. Um, so piling up on that track time early in your career is a really good thing to do. Formula 3 would have been a great way to do that and it would have put me in the ring with um, some really great drivers as well. Um, whereas maybe some of my early years, for example, in Formula Renault, weren't quite as competitive, weren't as hard and didn't get as much track time. Um, and certainly when I went to GP3, track time is is very low in that series. So um, yeah, maybe that's that's probably the main thing I would have changed. Okay, there we go. Thank you, Danny, for your question. Um, we have got, I've got some quick fire questions now because we had so many through and I just want to do, I think there are about 15 I've got here. We'll try and do as quickly as we can. I think we can have some fun with this. Okay, are you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. Your racing hero? Uh, Schumacher and Clark. Favourite film? Cool Runnings. This is from someone called Alex. Will he pick me up from the airport when I fly home? <laughs> For a fee, yes. <laughs> That's his girlfriend, by the way, everybody. <laughs> For a fee. Okay, very good. Um, can you speak Korean? Uh, yes, I can. A little bit. Uh, I can just about introduce myself, um, but I cannot have a conversation, so um, I'm limited. Okay. Uh, another question on the same lines. Which part of your family is Korean? So my mum is South Korean. Um, she moved to London when she was fairly young. Um, but before that, she lived in lots of cool places as well, like uh, India, Africa and Kenya, um, Greece at one point, and obviously in Korea and Hong Kong, uh, because her dad had a traveling job. Um, so yeah, she... She doesn't, um, she didn't speak Korean to me as a baby, which I'm forever angry about. Uh, but that's basically because she's not lived in Korea for so long that she's a bit rusty. Excellent. Good stuff. And um, this is not from your girlfriend. So it's from a fan. How are you so handsome? Oh, well, <laughs> now Alex is going to track you down and, and find you. So <laughs> I think it was a bloke. I think it was a bloke. It's a bloke. <laughs> I think so. Well, actually, um, well, thank you, first of they all. They want to know your secrets. Uh, my secret um being a half asian half scottish half scottish half korean i feel like is a good mix i don't know um, there is no, there's no skincare routine um yeah my teeth could probably do with being straight in that I don't know. <laughs> well you clearly pleased someone out there so all good favorite song oh god that's hard uh, that's really hard mm. um i'm a big fan to pin it down to one song, uh, like favorite of all time, I probably couldn't do. Uh, but Queen are right up there. I love Queen. Um, I also love Bruce Springsteen, uh, much to Alex's dismay. I don't know. She doesn't get it. Right now, like what I'm listening to, my favorite song is probably um, Adrenaline by Simple Creatures, uh, which is, if you've not heard of Simple Creatures, it's a band formed by Mark Hoppus from Blink-182, who is Alex's favorite band, major favorite band, and um, a guy from, um, is it All Time? I can't remember. I, I have to figure out who the other guy is. But anyway, they're great. Listen to them. 
Okay, quick fire, remember Jack, quick fire. I'm sorry. <laughs> Your hidden talent. Hidden talent, um, I have double jointed fingers. Oh, okay. Um, yep, I can clip for social media. For those listening, yeah, for those watching, you can see, for those I, listening, just bend can... his fingers back. <laughs> oh, goodness me. Um, I can <laughs> Great, good. Yeah, weird and wonderful world of Jack, there you go. <laughs> Um, your FTP, which is your, do you know, I always actually get the um, acronym wrong. Well, your, man, functional, <laughs> your functional threshold performance. I don't think power. that's right. Functional threshold power. Power. We were so close. <laughs> um, for people who don't know what that is, that mm. is, it's a measurement used in cycling to see how fit you are, the power that you can sustain for one hour. Uh, and for me, that is about at the moment 250, I would say 250 to 260, um, which is 4.2, 4.3 watts per kilo for all the cycling nerds out there. Yeah, that's one for the cyclists for sure. We, we, we are cyclists. Yeah. If you could be an animal, what animal would you be? Oh, I'm, I'm a dog person, so I'm naturally inclined to say dog. And probably um, one that likes lots of hugs and cuddles, like that. Okay, golden retriever maybe. Yeah, or... uh, a golden lab. Um, yeah, they're they're safe bets. Lots of love. It's yeah. a happy life, you know. <laughs> oh, the best life for sure. Your favorite food? Um, I really, really like Korean food, um, which I don't get to have often. Uh, of Korean food, I love to have a good Korean barbecue. Um, or bibimbap, it's like comfort food for me. Your favorite Australian? Um, I want to say Mark Webber, but you know, I think Danny Rick just, just edges it because he's just, he's got the sense of humor and he's such a good looking guy as well. Yeah, Danny Rick, I'm gonna pay for this later. <laughs> yeah, your girlfriend, Alex, who is Australian, sent me that question and she said, he better not say Danny Rick. He's Australian. Oh, shit. <laughs> Your favourite track? Um, I've got two answers to drive by myself, Suzuka, um, because it is just incredible and scary. Um, and to race on probably Spa. Spa is so often a favourite. Um, it's one of my favourites as well. It's incredible, it's, isn't it? Yeah, just the atmosphere... The fact that you've got those two long straights, the camel straight and then the back straight towards bus stop means that you do get good racing uh, and the middle sector makes it a driver's track as well because it's so challenging. It's, it's probably the only track that I go to regularly where I'm like, going to have to concentrate here. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, your favourite film? Um, cool Runnings, I think. Uh, but also... Oh, I've I, asked you that twice, sorry. Yeah, but also, I did think of this after, I yeah. really, really liked uh, Le Mans with uh, Steve McQueen in it. That's a great film for car enthusiasts. If you weren't in racing, what would you be doing? If I worked in racing, not as a driver, presumably. If you weren't in racing. I sorry. weren't in driving. Yes. I can't imagine a world with me not in driving, racing. Um, we talked about earlier about, I did consider university very briefly. Um, top of the list uh, when I was considering stuff was, uh, was psychology um, because I like to know how stuff works and what's cooler than knowing how stuff works other than knowing how the brain works. So I can read people's minds. That's how it works, right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So maybe I would have been a performance psychologist or something like that. Love that. Um, that's it. Well done. Quick fire-ish, I'd say. Yeah, I get too, too into it. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I love it. I mean, I love a talker. That's all good. That's what a podcast's about, isn't it? Jack, thank you so much for sharing your five life lessons. Yeah, of course. I hope that people enjoyed it and took something from it. I'm sure they did. I'm sure you'll find out on social media anyway. Yeah, if, if you guys have questions, feel free to hit me up um, and just know that if you send something nasty, I will see it and probably reply to you so <laughs> be warned oh brilliant jack thank you so much take care and hopefully see you at a racetrack soon thanks laura see you soon oh, a huge thank you to jack for his time and for sharing so much from his career so far i really loved our chat i hope you did too 
The quick fire round, well, absolute chaos, wasn't it? Uh, I don't know why I thought it would turn out any other way, and I'm sure he'll be in trouble with his girlfriend, Alex, for that Daniel Ricciardo answer too. That's it for this season. I can't believe it. It's absolutely flown by. I really hope this podcast has offered you a bit of escapism, hope, entertainment, inspiration, motivation, whatever it may be over the last few months and indeed the last year or so, which has been so challenging for us all. A big thank you to my guests this season, Jamie Chadwick, Matt Smith, Chris Hoy, Kelly Southerton, John Barkley, Danny Rowe, Vicky Holland, and of course, Jack Aitken. And the biggest thanks to you all for listening, sharing, downloading, and subscribing. It means the world to share this podcast with you. I hope to be back at some point soon, and there may just be a few cheeky bonus episodes along the way with brilliant people from the world of sport reflecting on the lessons that we learn in every human experience. Until then, take care and see you soon.